uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. The Word of God says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in, the, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Lord, we have been entrusted with this same glorious gospel. We ask God for your uh, spirit's illumination as we seek to understand what you are saying to your church in these verses. So God, we ask for uh, empowerment and the power of your spirit to be alongside of that illumination so we can understand you, to see you clearly and worship you more passionately. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be an attractional church? You may be responding to that question in one of two ways. Been something around church environment, church culture within the evangelical church in the United States. It's been around going on, I think, 30 plus years. But for some of you, that might resonate. Like, you know what? We need to be an attractional church so we can attract the broken and hurting that are around us so they can come here and be loved. Or you might respond out of that. If you've been a part of the church a long time, you might respond to that with a little suspicion. An attractional church? Jeff, what are you going for? What are you, what are you talking about? Maybe you're suspicious that now I'm going to take the church in a different direction and drift off from the truth. You know, this, that's because this has been the sad reality of a lot of evangelical churches within the past 30 years. They've gotten to a place where they, it seems, they have either chosen love or chosen truth. But understand this, love and truth are not incompatible. They're very, very compatible. When we know the truth and hold fast to the truth of the gospel, we will love God more. And we will love God's people more. And we will love the lost more. Doctrinal fidelity should issue forth in love. This is Paul's encouragement to Timothy to correct the swerving happening in the church. They seem to have been neglecting love in order to defend their unique perspective. Timothy needed to remind them that loving truth should show up in love for others. The church in Ephesus forgot how to love because it had neglected doctrinal fidelity. Now, when churches swerve off of truth in an effort to love, say they, you know, we just need to love people more. So maybe not pay attention so much to how the, the doctrinal nuances and stuff. Let's just back off of that and just seek to love people. 
they will eventually fade because they lack the structure that the truth provides. They'll call people, I think ultimately, to a God that resembles man. Now, when churches swerve off of love in defense of the truth, we're going to be truth seekers and, and truth proponents. So when churches swerve off of love in their effort to protect that truth, they will eventually die out because they lack the expression that love provides. And they will end up condemning people in the name of God and using the law unlawfully. The church should be attractional. Now, that doesn't mean that we have, like back in the 90s, uh, it, was, it was a huge force and books were written to be an attractional church in order to figure out who you're going after as a church to be able to attract those people and, and care for them and love them. So the, the central issue became, let's have the programs that will attract the people. Programs aren't, are helpful and they're needed to promote growth, godly growth in the lives of God's people, believers. A church should have programs. We want to have programs. But the church is not built with programs. The church is built with love. And the love that we have with one another. When the church keeps the gospel central to guide its mission and its values, people should take notice. Jesus says that in John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is telling them, as you serve, this is right after he washes all of their feet, uh, and, and right before he's going to the cross, he's saying, if you do this, if you serve and you love one another, people will take notice, but they'll take notice for the reason that I'm doing it, to show forth my sacrifice and my life for you. So our main point today is this. The church should be attractional through its doctrinal fidelity, evidenced and expressed with empowered love. Churches should want a doctrinal effectiveness, but that, should, that effectiveness should come in the form of love, not, which oftentimes it devolves into, self-righteousness. Now, love, when a church is effective in holding to the gospel truth and sound doctrine, love should be expressed then in, in varieties of ways. love making up some new words. Love doesn't mean we forget doctrine. We don't say, well, you know, we're just not going to pay attention to that. We're just going to love people right now. It doesn't mean that. It means the more we learn about God, the more we will love people. The more we learn about God's expression of love in Jesus, we will then seek to express his love to others. Now, sadly, when a church misplaces devotion to the truth, as the Ephesian church did, Love will then be turned inward. Believers will love themselves very well, but neglect loving others outside of themselves. And eventually, that, that's, that group of believers will become self-righteous. Our self-righteousness creeps in because we look for some, as we're in the faith and we grow in the faith, we then look for some measurable component to remind us that we're doing okay. Because faith is, it's... it's it's intangible. You can't grasp onto faith. How do you know you're living by faith? How do you know you have enough faith? And so you then try to figure out, well, well maybe if I, 
maybe if I read my Bible enough, maybe if I pray enough, and start, then, then all of a sudden our relationship with God becomes checking off some boxes. Why do we do that? Because we're trying to tell ourselves we're okay with God. That somehow God's pleased with us because of the performance that we're, we're acting in and, and giving him. But when that happens, we're actually not living by faith in God, who is invisible. We end up living by faith in what we can see in our performance. We end up living out, well, am, am I doing enough? Am I doing it right? And then we look to other people, and our encouragement of other people actually comes, we're applauding what they're doing like we're doing, and then all of a sudden we're gathering together and just encouraging one another in our performance. Our encouragement for faithful living become rooted in our performance for God rather than our faith in Christ. The false teachers in Ephesus were applying their self-righteous standards and performance to the church as a way of measuring faith. They're doing the same thing. What may have started as wise methods to help obedience, now there, there, there are wise methods for us to walk in to further our, our obedience in Christ. But that wisdom will look different. It'll be applied differently in each other's lives. But when we start, when we have a wisdom component, like this is wisdom for me, I need to walk this out in order to preserve my heart for God, it's dangerous or it can be unloving, self-righteous to then take that wisdom, that standard of wisdom for us, and then begin to apply it as necessary for every other believer to walk out. Like, look, this has helped me. I get up early in the morning so I can uh, read the Bible. Now, everybody else has to do that too. No, Jesus got up early, he stayed up late. The point is, we've got to do it. We've got to pursue the Lord. What may have started as wise methods for these believers to help their obedience becomes the, the rule for everybody. They ended up then at that point, using the Old Testament law as a, me- as a means to measure their salvation. Like, well, God said in the Old Testament, so that, that must carry over into what we're experiencing. Now, Paul tells them to, to, there's a proper use of the law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. What on earth is he talking about? Glad you asked. Second point is this. What is the proper use of the law? The first thing we have to do is understand the law. What the law is when it's talked about especially in the New Testament, is referring to the vast majority of the commands that are contained in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, called the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law. It's, that's what uh, they're referring to, and, and it's over 600 commands that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's a lot of commands. Now, they can be gathered into three categories. The Old Testament law can be gathered into civil law because they were a nation and God was reigning over them and they needed laws and know how to, what to do with land and what to do if somebody steals from you and how to pass on that land. There was civil obedience that was required. So there was civil law. There was also ceremonial law. There was ceremonial law because God said, you have to come to me holy. To interact with me and to worship me, you need to come holy. Holy, so if you have this disease or that disease, you need to wait a certain amount of time to be purified in order to come into the temple to offer your sacrifices and worship. So there was a a purification that happened, and it was a physical purification to ultimately point to the inward purification that Jesus will provide. So this this civil law, ceremonial law, there's also moral law. There's moral law that, that is the expression of God because God is holy. 
And when he tells his people to be holy like he's holy, he says, obey my law and you will understand my holiness and you will see my holiness because it issues forth from his being. Now, Paul wrote that that law is useful if it's used usefully, lawfully. Now, what is the proper use of the law? Now, let's talk about using the law. There's two categories of using the law in the New Testament. The first one is to bring us to Christ. Particularly, think about this, to bring unbelievers to Christ. The two applications, it's hard to dissect them cleanly this way, but it's for believers and unbelievers. But if we're just continuing in sin, we need to know that God's righteous standard is still there, and it needs to terrify us a little bit into saying, no, God, I want you. I don't want to pursue a life of sin. I want you. But the law is to bring us to Christ. And Paul tells the Galatians that in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 24, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. It was a guardian. It was a tutor. It was something that was letting us know someone else is coming that will actually be the fulfillment of this righteous standard that we then can trust in because the law tells us we ain't right. Got a lot of we got a lot of stuff wrong with us, and our hearts are craving to go after these things that God says don't do. Paul listed a series of sins for which the law is used to stand against. Now he lists some extreme categories, but when you look at them, they actually line up with the Ten Commandments. He said the unholy and profane. You can think of the first few commandments about don't. Don't worship any God except God alone. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't profane. Those who strike their parents. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. Murderers. Commandment six, don't kill. Sexually immoral and homosexual. First, uh, commandment seven, don't commit adultery. Those, the, the original words that he uses when he writes this link very carefully to the commandment seven. Enslavers, don't, don't steal. Don't steal people. Liars and perjurers, commandment nine, don't bear false witness. Whatever else, commandment 10, don't covet. When you read in Romans seven, Paul says, man, I was doing great until I got to the 10th one. Don't covet. Oh, now I'm sunk. We got those. We got coveting happening. Now, the law is and should be terrifying when we recognize the weight of God's glory behind those, the principled nature that's revealed, the principle of God's nature that's revealed in that. It should be terrifying for the unbeliever. Sadly, I think believers have tried to use the law to terrify unbelievers. That's God's job. What our responsibility is, I was terrified. And then God came to me and revealed Jesus. When I trusted Christ for salvation, that terror, that weight of sin, that burden, it lifted. And now I have a relationship with God through Christ. The law is useful for the unbeliever because it points to God's holy requirements. 
Now, the church needs to know how to apply the communication of these within the banner and under the banner of love so it doesn't come off as condemnation. I'll get to that in a second. Now, the second aspect, the proper use of the law, is to keep us experiencing Christ. It's to bring us to Christ and then keep us experiencing Christ. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Is Jesus saying that he's obeying this in order to be qualified for God's love? No, he's already been qualified because he's a son. I have followed my Father's commandments because I'm his son. I want to obey him. Now, by obeying him, we experience God's love. So what what was a dividing line, the law being a dividing line between us right here and God right there, has now, it's still there, but what then it becomes is a guardrail for us so we don't get outside of God's presence. By obeying his law, he keeps us in. For the unbeliever, it's a recognition that we're outside of his love. But for the believer, we are now inside of his love. And the more we obey, the more we experience of his love. The more we obey, the more we experience of his presence. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You'll stay, you'll rest, you'll be there. The law is now the guardrail for us to stay in. To stay in God's presence within salvation. Our obedience does not get us into God's presence. Capture this truth as well. Our disobedience doesn't kick us out of his presence. Because we are sons and daughters by trusting Christ, so our identity keeps us in. Our efforts don't get us into his presence. Our our trust in Christ gets us into his presence. Yeah, we're standing there terrified. The law is pure and it's holy because it's God's righteous standards. And I am sunk because I can't do anything to fix it. God has to come to me and fix it. And when we trust him, his promise is that we will stay with him. He loses, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I've not lost one. I've gathered all the sheep that God's given me. I haven't lost one. Now, what, which, how do we know which laws of the Old Testament to follow now that Jesus has come. Some uh, quick helpful criteria. When the New Testament is consistent with the Old Testament, we follow that. So the, the New Testament is very consistent with God's moral law. God is God, and he is holy, and we honor him with a life of holiness that we walk out. The ceremonial law, the purification laws have all been fulfilled in Jesus. Now, there's a principle behind the ceremonial law. There's a principle of purification that we still honor as believers. I want to be pure before God. There's a pure heart we need to come to him with. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a a pure heart. So purity is still a standard. We want to pursue that purity by looking toward God and honoring him. So though we don't follow the exact specific if this happens, if you have an issue this way, issue this way, here's what you need to do. You need to wait outside the camp seven days. That's all been f- fulfilled in Jesus. The civil law, the civil law doesn't carry over one for one. 
It doesn't carry into the church even exactly, but the principles still apply. That's why, as believers, it's good for Christians to vote. It's good for them to speak up about laws that reflect God's nature and speak against laws that don't reflect his nature. It's okay. It's for, we're supposed to be active in that way. And now there's going to be varying degrees of activity that, that just as people desire to do that. As God equips them and faith, faiths them, to walk that out. But we honor his moral law. We honor his principle of purity in the ceremonial law. We honor his principle of civility, caring for one another in natural law and laws that are made in the land. Now, it's glorious that we even get to participate in that. Because when Paul wrote this, they didn't get to choose their leaders. They didn't get to speak up a lot. We live in a very unique moment in history. And when all of that, let's think now of the relationship. The aim of our charge is love. The law is used unlawfully. How, how do we connect law and love? Because the law is expressed in love. And that's what kind of produces it. If we think about the law correctly, it will produce love. Matthew 22 it says, when, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. That's the entire Old Testament. All the law, all the prophets. All of the laws expressed how? Love God with everything you are and love others better than you love yourself. So when we think about the law rightly, and God, God creates those Ten Commandments to say, if you keep these, you'll experience my love, and then you'll, that love will issue forth through your life to others. The third concept for us is what is a faithful love? We want to have a faith-filled love that issues from a pure heart. We want to have this charge, the aim of our charge. We want to be on target with God, on target for the church. Where's the church going? How do we, how do we make sure we do this? Paul, tell him, your, your charge is love. Protect, honor, preserve the truth, guard the truth. But make sure you're also loving in the way that that is consistent with your honoring of the truth. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's take these three concepts. A pure heart. Holiness in our hearts. You know, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus took the law and he, he didn't just leave it on tablets of stone. He put it in hearts. If you've heard it said, and he was quoting a law, he says, but I say to you, it goes deeper. It's a heart deep issue. It's a heart level issue. You've heard it say, don't kill. Well, I say, if you look upon a brother with hatred in your heart, you, you are guilty of breaking that commandment. What was Jesus doing? He was allowing them to look back past a measurable experience in their faith to say, God, what is deep inside of me that I need to trust you with? What's deep inside of me that I need your holiness and your purity to affect? 
Because that's where purity happens. We can follow all the rules and still not be pure in heart. But it's the pure in heart, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's purity in heart that accesses him, that sees him, that knows him, that loves him. But having a pure heart recognizes what our eyes and ears are capturing in the life that we walk in. And making sure that our eyes are feasting upon the word of God and our ears are feasting. And and even uh, the filter of our ears comes through the worship and praise for God alone. And when we hear things, we, we we, we use the filter of the word and the filter of the spirit to be able to know distinguishing between truth and false teaching or distinguishing between love of self and love of God. We live in a culture that says it's okay to love yourself. And if you tell anybody that they can't love themselves, then you're not, you're not loving yourself probably because you don't understand that you can't tell somebody they can't love themselves. So you need to do some hard work and love yourself. There's another false teaching going around. I just remembered. I believe the Spirit gave it to me. Um, this is, it, uh, it's misguided. But the thought that to love others, we first need to love ourselves is wrong. And I hear that. I've heard it over the past couple of years. Like, I, in order to be lovers of others, I need first need to love myself from, from reputable teachers. Like, love myself first. Oh, we are not the object of our salvation. Jesus is the object of our salvation. So the more we love him, we'll find that we want to love others. The more I love myself, I don't want to love anybody else. I'm actually looking for them to love me like I love me. You feel me? I, this, yeah. Oh, I love me. I feel real good about myself. And you don't feel good about me? There's something wrong with you. Because I feel real good about me. But these things, they, they infiltrate. We don't understand the purity of the gospel message. That's how it infiltrates. And we take a verse, and it's weird. Or in order to forgive others, you need to first forgive yourself where it comes from that. Like there's, there's, a, there's a concept. I haven't figured out exactly how to describe it, but there's a concept of forgiveness of self that's real. But listen, I've heard this said too. I know God forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. Then you don't know God forgives you. Because in that moment, we're saying, God, uh, my opinion of myself is actually more important than your opinion of me. Well, you've just made yourself an idolater because you're loving yourself more than God. No, receive God's forgiveness. When you recognize how much he's forgiven you, you love him. God, thank you for forgiving me when I'm a knucklehead and a rebel. He's kind and patient with us. So we want to pursue a purity of heart. We also want to have a good conscience. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If we are in Christ, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no punishment left to bear because Jesus is the punishment. There is no punishment 
we don't beat up ourselves because Jesus didn't fulfill it all. No, he fulfilled it all. So we stand in amazement that I don't have to pay for this anymore. There's no penalty left. Well, then it's, that's a sound doctrine. I worship and I love you, God. And I want to find out how I can express that love to others by reminding them there's no condemnation for them who are in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Now, sadly, what the church does well is condemn. We throw shame really, really well. We throw shame without our words. We throw shame with rolls of an eyes or looking off with our heads. We throw shame for people so they are they're in this weird mode, especially with unbelievers. Look, God does not call us to condemn unbelievers. He does it, and they know it in their hearts. What he needs us to do is say, if you trust him, there's no more condemnation. And that, that voice that keeps on shaming you and putting you down, when you trust Christ, it'll be gone. Try to, try to last roar, try to come in, but you have the victory in Christ, and you can put it to bed forever. You can put it in the grave forever. But telling somebody about the condemnation that comes when we don't receive Christ doesn't have to come with bullying and shouting. What it comes with is a tenderness and a broken heart in us saying, I want what, what I have. I want you to have what I have. Because do you know what stands on the other side for you in eternity? Do you know what you're facing? Soften your heart. Repent of your sin and trust Christ for salvation. The story of a, a man who, uh, when the Titanic sank, um, this one believer who was floating on the, the wood planks that were left over in the water in the North Atlantic, as everybody is out there, he went from person to person and swam to them and said, do you, do you trust Christ for salvation? Do you trust Christ for salvation? And if they said no, he would share the gospel with them in that moment, and he would say, trust Christ for salvation. And he did it until he froze to death. That's a picture of how we should be. He wasn't doing it. He wasn't standing on a plank condemning people. See, y'all trusted in the iceberg too. I know the difference. No, in love, in mercy, seeing people in their need, he just swam over them. Do you trust Christ for salvation? Do you trust him? It should give us a picture of how we need to move through our lives with the people that we know. Asking them, do you trust Christ for salvation? And may we have the courage to do the people that we love the most on this planet. Because you know what? That seems to be the hardest people that we have the time with bringing up Jesus. And look, Jesus knows exactly how we feel because he had a hard time bringing up himself to his family. They didn't believe him until after he was dead. His brothers and his sisters didn't even believe him until after he was dead. They said he was crazy. They were looking to institutionalize him. Hey, your mother and your brothers are at the door. They want you. You know why they wanted him? Because they just said, yeah, we know he's a little woo, so we need to bring him, we need to bring him home. He gets out like this. Jesus knows what it's like to have a hard time convincing your family. But may we have the courage. May we take the opportunity to express then, may, may, may our loved ones see a sincere faith, a faith that's literal words without hypocrisy. Yeah, another thing 
thought entered my mind. Uh, I've heard this, that the church is filled with hypocrites. Yes and no. The church is filled with people that are trying to put off the old self and its nagging tendencies and trust Christ for salvation with everything in every aspect of their lives to put on Jesus more and more. That's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody that doesn't, doesn't, what we have, and this is not hypocritical, we, we walk in life, we fall, we sin, we trust Christ more, we look to put him on, and we're on the journey. That's not a hypocrite. That's just filled with people, just believers trying to put on Jesus and, and, and bring the, the body of sin to nothing like Jesus wants us to. A hypocrite is somebody who says, do this, or establishing a law, that, but they don't follow themselves. Now, the church, church has those, but I don't think that's the majority. What's the majority is, are we, are, we, are we known for the struggle in the Christian life? Because those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Second Timothy, Paul's letter, the second letter says that. So what that means is there's a struggle, and the struggle is real. Make sure that you are living in a humble way. It just lets people know that. And make sure that they know a love that's coming through you. So it, it's a sincere faith. It's without hypocrisy. It's not standing up saying, hey, everybody needs to obey this. But you're ignoring it. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the false teachers in the church in Ephesus were doing. Now, I want to give this as a little caveat. Loving others doesn't mean you have to agree with them. In our culture, to disagree is to not love. Well, you disagree with me? You don't love me. Cancel. To love biblically and to love the lost does not mean that we have to agree with everything that they're saying and doing. It means we have to learn to approach them without condemnation because they're already feeling it, remember? We don't want to undo what the Spirit's doing in that moment, but we want to be able to have a conversation. To say, hey, I need to tell you this because we are to speak the truth in love. Two examples. Uh, uh, I think where the church has failed. Actually, the church has failed in both categories. <laughs> so we need to redeem them both. Uh, let's, uh, homosexual relationships. I, I want to just draw out Paul saying uh, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, because that is a the moral revolution that we're in. Uh, we, we are viewed as haters because we stand for God's law because he is a pure, righteous, and holy God. Somebody who practices homosexuality and wants to change their gender does it from the aspect of, I want to finally be free because I feel trapped not realizing that that's the wrong thing to go after. We're trapped because of our sin, not because of our, our identity in gender. Because when they find that they're in the new, walking in the new, it just becomes a new entrapment. When, when someone practice homo, practices homosexuality, or somebody changes, seeks to change their gender, they're actually dehumanizing themselves because they're taking what God says was good in the image that he created them, and they're saying, they're saying this wasn't good. I'm going to redefine good for me. And as I redefine good for me, everybody else needs to agree with it. 
You know, the church needs to be a voice of love. And I hope I just expressed that. I hope you feel the love that I'm expressing, even as I expressed it like that. I've expressed it to homosexuals like that. Through the years, I've met with some, and, and believers who struggle. And they say, I'm just, I'm just tired of fighting. I'm tired of fighting. I'm worn out. I'm giving in. But we need to be able, what, the church has not done a good job with this. And particularly because of the 80s and early 90s, when the church began to act as if, if they were not saying it, that AIDS in the homosexual community was God's judgment on them. Taking a verse out of context in Romans chapter 1, and in them getting the due penalty of their sin, the church backed off and didn't love. And so now for 30 years, the church has been taking clues from the culture on how to love people, rather than setting the example in love. Because we think it's disgusting that we back off rather than engage and say, can we have a conversation? Can we talk? Another category, and this has become a, you know, both of these categories we look away, um, but where, where I think the church has been silent now, even within our community and, the, and believers that I know within our community, uh, the other end of the spectrum is this, is overlooking sexual immorality. And as a church, we're doing it, and I'm grieved. We're overlooking sexual immorality. When believers, professing believers who are dating, decide to live together before they get married, or even have sex before they're married, and the church doesn't stand up and say, that's wrong, that's wrong. You think you're helping your relationship. You're actually hurting your relationship. There's stats to prove it hurts. It hurts the relationship rather than enhance it. But the, in all the name of compatibility, the church looks the other way. And we resemble the culture rather than set a light on a hill. You know, I, my daughter Lane and Christian got married in September. They got married young. You know what they had to face from people? Why are you getting married so young? You haven't lived life long enough from believers. You know why? Because they wanted to be pure. And their parents wanted them to be pure. And it's okay to set an example. We had, we had tough conversations about how are things going. Where's the, wretched, where's the purity level? Do we need to come in and offer some wisdom? Do we need to come in and offer some accountability, some hard rules to make sure that things stay pure? I was grateful. Kathy and I were blessed that both of them had a desire to stay pure until they were married. I'm just grateful for that. But we, people are looking the other way. Christians and parents are looking the other way. Well, I guess this is okay. Not recognizing that our souls are being tormented. Looking the other way in, in pornography, looking the other way with things that are happening that should not be happening. And the church is to love one another into Christ to the level that, that, that this type of sin stuff, the battle gets better and things fall off. Because we're loving each other into Christ. We love the truth. We love one another. Now we're to do this with kindness. Because look, 
Romans 2.4, do you presume upon the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness draws us to him. God, God's kindness in tandem with the law brings us to him. And as we obey, keeps us in him. So we want to have the truth in love. We want to obey the truth in love. And we want to shine with the truth in love. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that we would have courage in two fronts. We would have courage to defend the truth, even when it's uncomfortable, even when the culture may seek us out and say that we're haters. Lord, I pray that we would have courage in the truth. And God, I pray we would have a courageous love. That we would be then a, a, a confusion, a conundrum for unbelievers. How can you love so well and still stand for what God says? Now may that be said of us because we, we love you. That's why. We love you and understand what you have forgiven. And we love you and love others with the same love that Jesus had, the same service, the same defender of the truth. Jesus, shine through us, please. In a dark and lonely and dying world. And may we encourage one another in your love in such profound ways, maybe the smallest yet profound ways, as you move us more and more and more into the image of your son.